You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. Today is about really inspiring you and encouraging you and getting you motivated somehow, some way to participate in the Lovewell Conference, which is coming up, but also what we haven't talked about is right after, about two weeks after the Lovewell Conference. The Lovewell Conference is... It's a Friday night and it's an all-day Saturday, but after that, on September 10th, which is a Sunday, we're beginning a, um, a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I think it might be listed in your bulletin, but we haven't made a whole lot of a big deal about it, but I'm going to make a big deal about it beginning today. Lovewell is a ramp up into a longer process of discipleship that we're going to um, introduce through this course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I'm going to talk a little bit about it today, so just hang with me. Basically, it's a much deeper journey in discipleship. Your, our lives are like an iceberg. You ever seen an iceberg? <clears throat> How much of the iceberg can you actually see on the surface of the water? They, usually, they estimate only about maybe 10 to 20%. Most of the iceberg resides underneath the surface. It's just like our lives. Most of what we do in church deals with the part of the iceberg, which is our life, that we can see on the surface. We tell you to learn more about the Bible. We tell you to behave the way the Bible tells you, the, God, the way God wants us to behave, right? Uh, we, we tell you, you know, you got to, when certain things become um, obvious in our thoughts or actions or words, we say, oh, you, that needs to be corrected, right? You need to, you know, uh, improve that. But how many of you know Just like that iceberg picture, most of your inner life is underneath the surface. And my guess, because it's happened to me and and countless others can testify the same way, that when we come to Jesus, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel touches certain parts of our lives. But sometimes it takes a whole lifetime for the gospel to touch deeper areas of our life. There are whole regions of your own soul that remain untouched by the gospel. I'm going to talk about some of that today. Well, we're going, to, we're, we're going to use the language of loving well today to talk about that, all right? So I just want to whet your appetite for what's coming, because when September hits, folks, after love well, we're going deep. Tell the person next to you, we're going deep. We're not going to stay on the surface anymore as a church. We're going deep, all right? Sorry, let's go deep today. There's a novel that was written by a Russian guy named uh, Dostoevsky, and he wrote a book called The Brothers Karamazov. And in the novel, he tells a story about a wealthy woman who approaches an old and wise monk with a question. The question that she had for him was, how is there a way that I can know that God really exists? And the old monk said, well, there's nothing I can do to convince you through philosophy or through you know, logic or argumentation you know, intellectual argumentation that will convince you that God exists because, you know, you're you're probably just not, you can choose to accept it or not. He goes, goes, but there is one way to know that that God exists or to prove that God exists. And he says the, the way to know is to practice active love. So then she says, you know what? Um... 
I've dreamed about doing that. In fact, I've dreamed about joining the convent and becoming a nun. And this is in the book now, okay? So she said, I, become, I dreamed about serving and giving my life in humble service to the poor and selling all that I had and just going and serving God sacrificially like that. She says, but whenever I think about what I would be doing to serve people, I always think about those people who will be ungrateful. The ones who will complain about the bread being too, you know, all stale. The ones who complain about the bed being too hard. You know, the ones that will complain and complain and won't be grateful for the service I'm offering them. And so she said, so I just, I just gave up on that dream. And I still struggle with trying to figure out whether God exists or not. And then to that, the old monk says in this novel, he says to her, love in practice Love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in practice is a hard and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. In other words, we all like the idea of loving. We're all in love to some degree with the idea of loving God and others. And, and it's great to dream about love, but to actually live it out, it's different. Because like this woman, we know that people are people. Like, it would be great. Like, I could have a great Christian life if it wasn't just for people, right? Take people out of it. Man, I'd be totally lo in love with God. <laughs> but I think when Jesus says this, he stretches us, doesn't he? he? He says things like, love your enemies. Like, it's one thing, and it's easy to, to love those who are easy to love. It's another thing to love those who you love to hate. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, I think he implies that our love must span the whole continuum, beginning with those we love to love, to those we love to hate, to those we're just flat out indifferent towards. He says, your love and the love that I offer you can span the whole continuum. So here's a, here's a thought I want to leave you with today. With the, with the help of the Spirit of God, and for those of you who are Christ followers, the help of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives in you with the help of the Spirit and with your willingness to learn. That's the key word, learning. We can become better lovers, lovers of God and others. So today we're going to explore what it means to be a learner when it comes to love. It's interesting because when it comes to our field of study, when it comes to our career, when it comes to our work, how many of you know we... We'll invest time, sacrifice time, and even money to learn how to do what we do better. Isn't that right? But how many of you have ever invested time and money in learning how to love? How many of you grew up in families that actually taught you how to love, like explicitly taught you how to love? Think about that. This is where we're going to. Now, the New Testament and the Bible, uh, in the ancient world of the Bible, <clears throat> especially the New Testament, there were at least four different words for love that were used. Okay, the first word uh, we're familiar with, it's uh, this word eros. It's where we get our English word for erotic. It's, uh, it means, it, it signifies the romantic or the passionate kinds of love, er, eros. The other word that was used was phileo. Phileo is like more of a friendship, brotherly love, where we get the word Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love. And then there's uh, the word storge. Storge is, uh, is more of a kinship, family kind of love. And so these were the words that were used, were commonly used for love back in the ancient world of the Bible. 
Well, when the New Testament writers wrote, <clears throat> wrote what they wrote, they picked a completely different word for love. They picked a word for love in the culture that was very, uh, it wasn't very common to use this word. The word was agape. Agape, colloquially in that time, was very similar to the meaning of phileo, all right? But it wasn't used very commonly. So the New Testament writers picked up on this word, and they said, you know what? We're going to take this word agape, and we're going to infuse it with a different meaning. We're going to use this word to signify the love <clears throat> that reflects the very heart and nature of God, especially the heart and nature of God expressed and demonstrated in his giving of Jesus, giving of himself on the cross and rising from the dead. And that whole story of redemption, we're going to use that to describe agape love. And in practice, what it looks and feels like is care, forgiveness, spontaneity, redemption, love that is infused with those qualities, a self-giving, selfless kind of love. That is the God kind of love. They used agape to describe that. So whenever we see the word love, for the most part, in the New Testament, the word comes out as agape. It's not eros or phileo. Sometimes it's phileo. Sometimes it's eros. But when they, you talk about love, the God kind of love, they use this word, agape. So, and yet, <clears throat> agape is, a, not kinda, is not the kind of love that we just think about. It's a love that has to be active. So according to Jesus, he says, what will distinguish you from everyone else on the, on the planet, what will, how, how people will recognize that you're my disciples is how? Through your agape, through your love, they will know that you're my disciples. So here's the thing. Um, <laughs> many of us desire to love like this. But often, when it comes to certain parts of our lives, we don't know how to express this love. Let me give you an example. All of you in here who have children, love your children. I'm not going to question that. I know you love your children. I love my children. But sometimes when you discipline them, they don't, the love that you have in your heart gets lost in translation. And they don't feel loved, even when you're disciplining them. Those of you in the room who have been married or who are married, you know that um, you can have love for your spouse on the inside. You can desire to love them more, but when you have that kind of conversation with them or when you interact with them in this kind of way, they don't feel the love. Make sense? There can be a disconnect. So here's the deal. Um, there... <laughs> There really is no spiritual growth and maturity that can happen if you're not learning to love well out of your relationship with Jesus. If you're not working to close that gap, that disconnect between your desire to love well and actually loving well, where the other person feels like they've been loved well. That makes sense? All right. So we're, we're going to talk about this disconnect. In fact, we're, we're going to deal with this disconnect beginning at the Love Well Conference. So tell the person next to you, sign up. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Sign up. You're going to hear this all, all morning. I'm so sorry. And we're going we're to explore 
a passage of scripture today that many of you are familiar with. We talked about this a few months ago. I don't remember. It feels familiar to me in terms of talking about it. But we're going to revisit 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter. All right, now, you've heard what we're about to read. You've all heard this already if you've attended a funeral. I'm sorry, if you've attended a wedding. I, was, I had in mind wedding, and I said funeral. Isn't that weird? Because, you know, weddings are really funerals in some way. You die to yourself. You die to your self-life, and you give it to your spouse. Come on now. <laughs> you may have heard it quoted at funerals as well. We're familiar with this passage. But here's what I want to point out, that... Um, when the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not writing a wedding sermon. He's not writing to inspire this church to love better. Right? He, he's not writing, because like when we hear these words that you're about to read, he, you know, we feel good. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is all this. Yeah, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Love, love, love. But Paul isn't thinking about trying to inspire this congregation that he's writing to. You know, he, he's actually doing something else. In fact, uh, this passage we're about to read is one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. So in order to understand it correctly, we need the context. Paul is writing to a church, a, a bunch of uh, Christians in a city called Corinth. Say Corinth. All right, now Corinth um, was one of the largest cities in ancient Greece. It was an urban center um, that was on the ocean there. It was like a big seaport. And as you know, like port cities, uh, they attract people from all over the world. It was a very cosmopolitan seaport. It was a multi-everything city. It had a lot of wealth going through, a lot of money going through that city. Uh, the city exploded in terms of its population about 100 years before Paul got there. But it was full of immigrants. Like, it was a multicultural place. People from the western, eastern, I mean, northwest, east and south, Jews and Gentiles and people from Asia and people from Europe, they all came to Corinth. And you know why they came for the most part? They came to make money and to cultivate a better life. They heard about all the opportunity in Corinth, so they sailed. They took the treacherous journey to, Corinth to, to start their business, to sell their product or whatever it was so that they could make money. And so Corinth... Because a bunch of people from different places would come to this place, they had the opportunity of leaving behind their homelands, and when they got to the city of Corinth, they created this sort of uh, pleasure-seeking center out of it. Corinth became known for being obsessed with sex, money, and success, much like Los Angeles, right? If you went to Corinth, you went to Corinth to make it big. It was like the land of opportunity. But at the same time, the society in Corinth, because of these dynamics, was a very wild society. Basically, you know, everyone left home, so you don't need to know about everything I, where I came from. I'm just here to party and have fun. And so it had this reputation of being a city full of drunkenness and sexual immorality. In fact, they had a large temple in Corinth, uh, a temple to the, the Greek god Aphrodite, Roman god Venus, the goddess of love, right? And this temple was, had, like, was famous for being so wealthy that they could hire a thousand or so temple prostitutes. That's how they worshiped the god of Aphrodite, right? Makes sense. 
Right? So Corinth, just think L.A., New York, Amsterdam, Las Vegas, all wrapped into one. Right? Did I give you a better picture? There it is right there on the map. Um, in the midst of this ultra-hedonistic city, a church is born. Like, in the darkest of places, the light of the gospel shines the brightest. And people respond to the gospel, and they come to Christ. And you can only imagine the kinds of people that got saved in Corinth and how, and the, and how the early church started with, they weren't prim and proper people. They, just, they came from hedonistic lifestyles, man. In fact, the apostle Paul calls them out on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says to them, you, this is what you were. Because sometimes they need to be reminded. They don't live according to their old life anymore, right? They're, they're believers in Jesus. They're children of the living God now. Sometimes they need to be reminded. So the apostle Paul tells them, listen, this is what you were. You, some of you were swindlers. This is 1 Corinthians 6. You were swindlers. You cheated people. You, you were thieves. You stole from others. Some of you were male prostitutes. Some of you were sexually immoral, idolaters, traitors, extortioners, drunkards. <laughs> and he goes, this is what you were. Then he says, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your new identity. This is what you were, but this is your new identity. I need to remind you, because what happened in Corinth was this. This church began to grow because the church and the people who got saved there were very talented people. They were very gifted people. They, they flowed in their skills and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you were to go to the church in Corinth and you were to visit on a Sunday morning, you'd see great, a great production. You'd see powerful worship, great music, anointed, like anointed charismatic preaching. You'd see ministry times that were so anointed and powerful because you'd see gifts of healing and miracles and word of knowledge and word of wisdom and gifts of tongues and in prophecy. It, would, it was all happening in Corinth. And you'd leave inspired and impressed. But Corinth, the Corinthian church, had a problem. They were very immature, as successful as they were on the surface. And all of that success and all of that charisma and giftedness and talent only masked the real problems they were going through. And so in this letter, Paul goes right for the jugular. He doesn't hold back. He puts their, okay, Corinth was jacked up. Paul puts their jacked upness on blast. And he exposes divisions in the church. Some of you guys are creating cliques, and you're going with that group, and that group, and that group, and, and dividing. And then he says, then there's verbal fighting amongst you. You're taking sides. I like that pastor. No, no, I like that pastor better. I like the way he preaches. I like that way they preach better. And divisions in the church. There was jealousy amongst people. There was unresolved conflict. There was a lot of pride. And you know where the pride showed up? Because there was sexual sin in the church that everyone knew about and no one addressed. And they, they were actually proud. They exhibited a general, sin, a general lack of humility when it came to the whole sexual sin arena. <laughs> so as gifted as they were, as wealthy as they were, in terms of their quality of relationships with one another, they weren't very healthy. 
So here it is. Gifted doesn't always mean godly. And wealthy doesn't always mean healthy. You see that slide? It's got a heart, the bottom left corner, and a little tweet at the bottom right corner. You know what that means, right? It's tweetable. <laughs> Just whatever. You can tweet that. When Paul writes this love chapter, he is not praising this church. He is not trying to inspire this church. He is rebuking this church. 1 Corinthians 13 is a part of a firm and strong rebuke to a young, immature, worldly church. And Paul drops a verbal bombshell on them. So let's, let's take the first four or five verses here. That's probably all we can cover today. And uh, let's break it down. He starts out by saying, remember he's just talking about spiritual gifts and he says all these wonderful things about spiritual gifts and showing them how to use them in proper and in order and all that. And then he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. When Paul says the tongue of men and angels, he might be referring to a couple things. He might be referring to oratory skill, the tongues of men, like ability to speak well. Or he, and when he says the tongues of angels, he might be referring to the gift of tongues, like what we talked about a few weeks ago. Now, the gift of tongues is a beautiful gift, right? The beauty of spiritual language. We practice it. We believe in it. We affirm it at this church. Paul even said to the Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than all you all. But he's about to show them the most excellent way here. He says to them, if I speak with tongues of men and angels, if I have all the oratory communication skills that are great that you enjoy, and by the way, in that culture, it was like a big deal for you to speak well, to be able to argue well, to be able to get up in front of people and, you know, give a presentation. See, you can have all the oratory skill in the world, and you can speak all the tongues. You can use the gift of tongues until you're blue in the face. Tongues of men and angels. But if you have no love, if that is not being driven out of love for God, then this is what you're like. You're like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What does that mean? Sounding brass, most scholars think, refers to a, 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 a brass cylinder that uh, they would put in groups of it, they would put in uh, the, the theaters of the day to amplify the sound. They also used the, sort of this brass cylinder like a doorbell that they would hang uh, at the entrance to the temples of, the, of that day. So when you went into one of these, uh, these doorways, you had the brass cymbal, what you did was you, you, you hit the brass thing like a doorbell to signify that I am now present to worship the gods of this temple. I'm here. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're all my gods. That was how you indicated that I'm present to worship. It was a loud sound. And Paul says, in essence, that you can go through all the motions of worshiping God and presenting yourself to God, but without love in your heart, it's nothing. Oh, no, but it makes me feel good. Yeah, 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 but in God's eyes, it amounts to zero. Without love, the rhetoric of your speech it might move people in the moment, but in God's eyes, zero. So he goes on. He says, 
And though I have the gift of prophecy, listen, I, I've heard a whole lot of uh, prophecies in my life. A lot of them were encouraging. Most of them were encouraging. Some of them were flat out like false. <laughs> you can receive special revelation from God and function in a gift called prophecy where you not only f- can foretell what's going to happen, because that's one of the functions of prophecy, foretelling the future, but also foretell, like you can tell in the moment what God is doing and have special insight into that and use that prophetic gift. And you can do it, watch this, without love in your heart. Some of you know my story. This, is, uh, this ring uh, resonates with me because um, for a number of years, I was associated with a prophetic type guy. Pro- gift of prophecy was off the charts, man. Like he told me stuff about me that I hadn't told anyone. That was more like word of knowledge stuff. But prophetic gift, he, he could quote from the Bible chapter and verse in whatever version you could think of. He had a photographic memory. I don't know if you've ever heard of the prophet Dick Mills, but he had kind of like a Dick Mills kind of ministry where he would prophesy to you and give you chapter and verse, and he'd quote it verbatim. And then he'd say, oh, in, in this version, it would be this. Oh, but then in the King James Version, it says this. Oh, but then in the NIV, it says this. And I was so blown away. That's why I followed him for a few years because he spoke prophetically to my life, and I thought I was being edified. And to some degree, I was. But let me tell you, behind the scenes, he was the meanest, judgmental, most critical person. He criticized and condemned every, almost every Christian leader that I knew of at that time and respected. He condemned them as a heretic, and he gave me all the reasons why. <laughs> I was impressed by his gift. I was intimidated by his character. He struck fear in my heart. Listen, you can have a gift that is used to temporarily bless people and still not have the character that is full and shaped by the love of God. It's possible. (laughs) Paul goes on. So what what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, that prophecy might have blessed people, made people feel loved by God in the moment, but in God's eyes, it counts as nothing if it wasn't done with love in the heart. He goes on. He says, though I may have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge. Like you can be the smartest person in the world. You can be smarter than a fifth grader. Serious. You can win that game. And and you can study it up, know everything there is to possibly know about all the mysteries. Get all that education and still fail in your ability to love. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's the irony is that uh, we value education so much in this society. We, we want to learn about all this stuff, and it's good. We invest half our life. I mean, most of us in the room, all of us in the room have, are going to spend, if we haven't already, at least 12 to 14 years in public education. And if you go further, maybe 20 to 25 years in public education, formal public education. That's what you'll invest, right? Some people. But... None of us would, like, all of us would agree that, you know, there's a limit to that stuff, right? I'm not going to spend my whole life looking for more information through public, uh, through formal education, right? Like, I'm having a hard time just trying to get this doctorate of ministry degree. There's a limit to pursuing education like that. But listen, 
Well, we've already spent a bunch of money, and we've invested a lot of time on it. However, when it comes to love, people will spend their whole life looking for love, but not spend a dime of time or money investing in how to learn how to love better. It's ironic. So Paul says, you can have all that knowledge, but without love, it goes nowhere, and it really gets you nowhere. And then he says, it gets even more confusing. You ready? He goes, and though I have all faith, not just some faith, all faith, so that I could remove mountains. He's alluding to what Jesus told his disciples. If you have faith this small as a grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, right? And it'll, it'll happen. Paul says, man, you can have all that faith. Now, what he means here is faith that results in miraculous power. Faith that gets the job done in terms of the miraculous. Miracle-working faith. That's what he's, he's saying. I can have miracle-working faith. I could see a bunch of people get healed. I could see thousands healed. I could see the dead ray. Whatever you want to, whatever is a result of the miracle-working faith that you exercise, you could have all that and still not have love in your heart. Okay, and here's the most confusing one. He goes, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned. Okay, now think about that for a second. Whenever we see anybody in our society sacrifice themselves for the poor, we automatically go, man, that's an incredibly loving thing to do. Like, intuitively, we're just kind of like, that's, that's so loving. That, wow, that's incredible. We're impressed by that. And notice he, just, he didn't say, I just give to the poor. He says, everything I have, I gave it all up to serve the poor. Like, isn't that a tangible expression of human kindness? Absolutely. Paul's not saying it isn't. But he is saying that you can engage in that self-sacrificing activity for reasons other than love. It's possible. Then it gets even, like, here's the, here's the pinnacle of it. If I give my body to be burned and have not love. There's a, there's a bishop in the first century named Clement, and in one of his writings, he writes about Christians of that day, and it would have been Paul's day when he was writing, who literally would sell themselves into slavery and give the proceeds to the poor. In essence, Paul's saying, man, you can sell yourself into slavery, give all the money to the poor, but if it's not motivated by love, you've gained nothing. Right, I think you get the point. <laughs> Oh, how much time we got? Okay. All right. You can do some pretty amazing things in the name of God. But if it's not making you a more loving person, and if love is not flowing from you as the motivation and driving force behind those actions, then it amounts to zero. Love is the infallible sign of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving in the heart. And we're not diminishing gifts because Paul's still into spiritual gifts. He's still into prophecy and tongues and healing and miracles and power and all that. All he's saying is it needs to come out of a heart that is full of love for Jesus. And you can cite different examples of 
people who were very gifted in the Bible, but in the end, it showed, their lives showed that, there was, that those gifts were really disconnected from the, their character. People like, you know, Balaam, the prophet, the prophet who made a prophet off of prophecy. The disconnect, right? The King, King Saul who prophesied in the power, under the power of the Spirit who led Israel, but at the same time, Saul ended his life um, consulting a witch, resorting to witchcraft to try to move his life forward, right? You guys, guys got like Judas, Jesus' disciple who healed the sick, raised the dead. I mean, did everything that Jesus told all his disciples to do. And in the end, something on the inside of selfish motivation eclipsed his love for Jesus. Okay, so here, here are some tweetable points. Ready? The power of God can flow through a person without the nature of God being formed in a person. It's possible. It's possible. It's possible for you to do all the good things that Christians are supposed to do and still not be a Christian. Okay? The abilities of God, the abilities that God gives to people has nothing to do with the spiritual maturity of a person. They're two separate issues. So Paul is addressing it in a rebuke in 1 Corinthians 13. He's saying, I need to set you straight. You need to grow up. Because, listen, while God can use gifts for his purposes, if you're going to have lasting fruit in your life, it takes a much deeper transformation in your soul. Lasting fruit requires deeper transformation. And so Paul says, okay, let me, let me paint the picture for what love looks like when you actually act it out. Right? He says this, love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, and isn't provoked. It thinks no evil. One way you could say, look at this verse is it's a love-o-meter. This is how you test whether what you're doing is mo really motivated by love. If any of, okay, so here it is. You ready? I'm going to throw up a bunch of words on the screen. If you see any of these words in your words, if you see any of what I'm about to show you right now in your actions, in your speech, or in your attitudes that no one can really see, or that you try to hide easy, then it's not being motivated by love. Love is not in the room. So if you're impatient, if you're mean, if you're envious, if you're irritable, proud, offended easily, touchy, like overly sensitive, entitled, triggered, judgmental, pushy, angry, secretly delighting in people's downfall, right? If you're motivated by selfish gain, if you're trying to keep score of people's offenses, then love is not in the room, people. It doesn't matter how gifted or how much you act out of spiritual gifts. All right? So look, so Paul basically says in the end, he says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. When love is in the house, you feel safe. When love is in the house, people feel safe around you. When they get around you, they know you love them. You're approachable. You're gentle. You're winsome, you're warm, you're kind. Even when you have to say something that you think or you know they won't like. Even when you have to discipline your kids, you can do it with love. Even when you have to confront something, somebody that hurt you or said some, offended you, you can do it in a way where love comes through. 
That's why we're doing the Love Well Conference, because most of us didn't grow up in families that understood how to do this in a way that exudes the love of God. We grew up in families that taught us different ways to deal with conflict, to handle discipline, right? Uh, to handle our feelings and emotions, especially the negative ones. And so that's why we're doing love well. That's why we're doing emotionally healthy spirituality. Listen, I went to seminary. And I can't, uh, all the years I went to school to study, to be, uh, you know, it's not really studying to be a pastor, but that kind of, you know, helps. Most of what I learned in seminary was about how to, how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to do theology, how to pick the right interpretation of the Bible and a passage and a scripture and a book, how to preach, how to, um, a little bit of leadership, how to lead people. There was only one class that I took that even got close to teaching me how to love. It was a class called Pastoral Self-Care because you can't love other people if you're not taking care of yourself. So it taught you how to take care of yourself as a pastor because the best person, I, the greatest asset I have to give others is my person. If I'm not taking care of my person, if I'm not, if I'm not caring, loving my person, not in a selfish, like, it's all about me kind of way, but in a healthy, appropriate kind of way, then I have really nothing to give to you. Got it? If I'm not letting the love of Jesus fill my soul and heart and the grace and his love and grace to penetrate my soul, and if, not, if not, I'm not building a lifestyle around which this can happen, then how can I give that kind of love to others, you see? This is our problem. And it's also a problem of skill, which is why today we're going to practice what I call one loving well skill before you leave today in the next five minutes. So you get the point. We, we need to start, begin by allowing the love of Jesus to penetrate our hearts and souls. We need to, that takes time, folks. You need time to let that love and grace every single day penetrate your soul, penetrate your busy world. Unless that's happening, we cannot be the loving, well kind of people God wants us to be. Unless that's happening, we'll keep on acting out of our skills and gifts and not growing in the levels of love that can actually fill our hearts. Paul says, if you do this without this, all that you're doing is in vain in God's eyes. And I'm done with pastoring a church that simply does this. I want to see God really deeply transform you. And the only way that happens is if you open to his love and if you learn how to love well. So we're going to practice something today. I'm going to call Pastor Mike up. Mike, Pastor Mike, love this brother. Brother from another mother, same father. We're going to do this skill called appreciations. And um, appreciations has to do with focusing on the positive aspects of life like what someone has done and who that person is to you, and, and just focusing on that for those moments and telling them um, that you appreciate those things. Now, um, in our culture, society, my guess is that we only ap appreciate or feel um, obligated to appreciate people when they go above and beyond our expectations. What we're going to teach you today is how to do this um, in just the normal rhythm of life, okay? Like, this is a love well skill. Um, and let me just throw a little bone for those of you who are, well, it's actually everybody who's uh, in 
who, has, uh, who wants to make their relationships better. Uh, there's a, a psychologist by the name of John Gotten that after 30 years, he did this study on interpersonal relationships, and he came up with what's called the magic ratio. The ratio is it's five to one, okay? He says, basically, after all this talking with you know, couples and people about relationships, studying it, he says that um, for every five negative comments that is made to you, you need one positive comment to keep that relationship going, okay? Five to one. And meaning to say, if, if, if you go over that ratio or that ratio is broken, then what usually happens is very predictable that that relationship either stagnates or it comes to an end, okay? it, Meaning to say, a relationship can only handle so much negativity. You need some positives in there. You need some affirmation. You need some appreciation. Yeah. So I'm gonna, we're going to practice and demonstrate the skill of appreciation. And I know, and, I'm gonna, and here's the deal, you're going to practice it after we demonstrate it. Okay, you're going to pick someone in the room, you're going to practice it, and you're going to do exactly what we, we did. Um, but I understand this is, is going to be difficult for some of you because how many of you, honestly, you don't have to raise your hand, grew up in a home where there was constant appreciation happening? Most people didn't. If you're from an Asian culture, I guarantee you, you probably didn't. Um, I, I don't know about African American or Latino, but, but listen, in the family of Jesus, this is how we learn to love each other well. We learn to appreciate each other. All right? So we're going to demonstrate it. And uh, ready? Yeah. All right, man. So yeah. um, let me start first. And uh, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget. Okay, I'm going to give Mike two appreciations. He's going to give me back two appreciations, things that he appreciates about me and, and vice versa. And then um, we're going to sit in for our spouses. So I, he's going to be Len, I'm going to be Christina, and we're going to tell each other what we appreciate about each other, right? And I'm doing that for a reason, all right? So just bear with me. Okay, so Mike, um, two appreciations. The first thing I appreciate about you is uh, I appreciate, uh, ever since you got here, which is a number of years ago, it seems like, um, you manage all the... Um, different types of technology in our church, and I know that you, it's not like something that you're super passionate about. You're good at, you're savvy, um, but you do it, and you do it with a, with, a, with a good attitude, even though you know that probably someone could come in and step in and probably do it way better than you're doing it, but um, I just, I appreciate that about you. The second thing I appreciate is um, I appreciate your desire to grow and learn as a pastor. Like, you've come to me several times asking for mentorship, and and you've, um, you've just maintained this sort of learning, teachable spirit. Even when we have to speak hard things to you, to correct, to adjust, loving rebuke, like you've embraced it with great humility. And I can see that that is, is going to really set you up for some amazing growth. But I appreciate that because that reflects the spirit of our church. So thanks. Thank you. This, is, this really works, guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so now he's going to appreciate me. <laughs> so uh, kind of along those same lines, I appreciate that uh, you, you value and trust me enough to, to make room for me to, to serve the church in ways that I'm gifted and to, to make room for, for me to, to really grow as a pastor. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the way that you love your family and model healthy boundaries in ministry. Um, I've honestly never seen a leader do that well. 
And I think that you are just an amazing example of what it looks like to set ministry boundaries, to put family first, and to make sure that you're taking care of yourself so that you're able to give uh, your best to God's people. And so I really appreciate that about you. And I don't think I've ever said that, but it's, it's an awesome thing to see. And um, I know I could probably speak for the rest of our staff, but I definitely take note of that. And, yeah, it's a great thing. I appreciate that a lot. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. All right. So... That was just between us. Now we're going to sit in for our spouses, okay? I know it's going to take us a little over time, and we're going to end today with you doing this. And the reason we're doing this next part is because you may be here with someone that you don't really know well. So what you're going to do, if you don't know the person well, you're going to actually have them sit in for somebody that you do know well. Does that make sense? No. It doesn't make sense? Okay, so if there's, no one that you don't know, if there's someone that you don't know well, you're, you're going to ask them to be, you're going to have someone in mind that you do want to appreciate, and they're gonna, you're going to pretend like they're that person. Make sense? Okay, so he's going to pretend like he's my wife, and I'm going to speak to him like he's my wife, just for this part, all right? And then I'll do the same for him. <laughs> okay, so honey, <laughs> uh, I appreciate all the, the ways, great and small, that you actually put time in to plan for our family to be together, like outside the normal daily grind. So from weekends and field trips and all that to small vacations and stuff like that, you put in a lot of time and effort doing that, and I really appreciate that. Um, the second thing I appreciate about you is your willingness to free up time for me um, because you know that I need to get on certain things that I've been procrastinating on, and, and you're always willing to, to free my, up my time by taking on a little more, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. I don't want to take that for granted. Thank you. You're welcome. Somebody send the tape to her. Yeah, somebody send the tape to her. Put it on Facebook Live and, you know, she'll watch it later. Okay, so I'm Christina. Okay, uh, dear. Um, <laughs> I appreciate the way that uh, you, you love me the way that I feel most loved. That you go out of your way to get to know, you've gone out of your way to get to know how I work and how I tick. And you love me specifically in the way that I feel most loved, which is most of the time words of encouragement and things of that nature. And so I really appreciate that you've done that. And I also tremendously appreciate the fact that you work a full-time job and you still bust your tail to come and serve here and to serve alongside me and to serve in the house and just to do everything that you do, just going above and beyond and just being the epitome of a godly woman. Dang it, she's not even. <sighs> Love you, honey. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Thanks, man. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. So this is how we're going to end the service today. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.